Hey, just a heads up in this episode, we are going to be talking about suicide. Please take care of yourself and listen at your own discretion. If you are having suicidal thoughts, please, please reach out for help. You can call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline available 24 hours a day. That is 988 in the United States. You can also call 1-800-273-8255. Please reach out and talk to someone if you need help. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. According to the CDC, in 2020, 12.2 million adults seriously thought about suicide. 3.2 million adults made a plan. 1.2 million adults attempted suicide, and roughly 45,000 died by suicide in the United States. That's one death every 11 minutes. It's not a matter of if you're going to take a call from someone experiencing suicidal thoughts. It's a matter of when. You shouldn't have to handle these types of calls without as much training and support as possible. That's why today we're talking with Jim Marshall and Jason Scott with the 911 Training Institute about Emergency Mental Health Dispatching, or EMHD. Jim is CEO and co-founder of the 911 Training Institute and a licensed mental health professional. He's a leading advocate in the 911 industry seeking to assure the well-being of our emergency dispatch professionals. His 911 Training Institute faculty delivers a full curriculum of fun and powerful courses on 911 pro resilience, peer support, and mastery of calls involving suicide and mental illness. Jim is co-editor of the book, The Resilient 911 Professional, a complete guide to surviving and thriving together in the 911 Center, which is available on Amazon. Jason is the Partner Engagement Director and a Resilience and Call Mastery Instructor with the 911 Training Institute. He also works as a contractor for Priority Dispatch Corporation in many roles. He was a 911 Quality Assurance Supervisor and is a subject matter expert in emergency medical protocols. Welcome, Jim and Jay. Hey, thanks, Becca. Good to be with you. That intro was a lot more professional and coordinated than the way we normally introduce ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no hand waving and screaming and stomping of <laughs> feet, so I appreciate it. Yeah, and and I'll add to that. Usually, it's a lot more of ebity, 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 ebity. What's up, Doc? Uh, you know, kind of like that. <laughs> So in the introduction, I kind of gave a brief look into your titles and the experience that you have, but I'm really curious about how people get into the current roles or the current careers that they are in. Hmm. So if you could each just give a quick rundown of your career path, how did you get where you are today? And we'll start with you, Jay. Well, my story is, I guess, like a lot of our 911 pros out there, kind of fell into the job by accident. I don't think a lot of kids grow up wanting to be 911 dispatchers, though some do. But I I started my 911 career path in 2010, and I worked for a rather sizable 911 agency for about 12 years. And I worked on the phones primarily to start with, and I became a big believer in the protocols because I came into this business knowing nothing about any of it. And I became, I would say, a pretty high-end user of the protocols, and I became an instructor. And then I started working in the radio, so I have a lot of years behind the headset on the radio as well. 
And then I started contracting for Priority Dispatch is where I really started branching out. And then around that same time is when I met Jim for the first time. And we became buds and we began working on the Life Bridges project. He brought me onto the Life Bridges project, uh, I think around 2018, 2019. And now I'm part of the staff at the 91TI doing that. So that's kind of how my career has gone. I didn't really set out to have a career in this business, but, but here we are. Yeah, here we are. And who better yes, to indeed. work with than Jim, right? Oh, gee, stop. No more. No, stop. No. <laughs> Jim, how about you? How, how'd you get here? It's very niche, your job. Are you aware of that? That I'm in my niche? Yeah. No, it's just a very niche job, right? Like there's mental health and mm. then there's emergency dispatch. And then for the two to converge, it's it's kind of niche. It's a very specific role that you're filling, that you and Jay are yeah. filling, that your institute yeah, that, is filling. That's true. So whereas Jay said he fell into 911 work, I was dragged into the 911 community by my my sister, Debbie. Now, there might be some of the folks out there who have heard me on other podcasts who will say, OK, oh, no, he's going to go into his whole story about Debbie, the dispatcher. Just give me a chance because we're going to go in some fresh directions here. But I have to give thanks to my sister, Debbie, because she made an invisible world visible to me. I was minding my own business as a I was a certain sort of a magnet, which I will abbreviate for those listeners who have sensitive ears, who probably are not among most of those listening to podcasts. I was a magnet as a clinician. I was deeply entrenched in people's lives, struggling with trauma, relationship conflicts and problems. And my sister and I were having conversations over the years as she did 911 work and I did my work, her her callers, my clients. And she found that the training that was available to 911 was not up to snuff when they asked her to start a dispatch academy in Michigan. So she's a bit of a, a pioneer, I'm very proud of her. And so she dragged me in saying, you get us, you need to teach us. And I said, no, I won't do it. And she said, why? And I said, because it would be disrespectful. Take somebody in psychology from the outside. I'm a licensed mental health professional, master's level psychology in Michigan. Take somebody from the outside, bring them in and have them point their finger at a classroom of very smart people. When we've never sat the console ourselves as psychology people, that's a wrong idea. My sister said, I'll tell you what's wrong is when your sister asks for help and you say no. You're going to teach my people or I'm going to break your arms. Now, she denies that she threatened bodily harm. But so that's how I got into it. And what happened was it's a I love to say that and just having come from Cape Cod training as one of our, our student members would, would pronounce this 911 is a lobster trap, <laughs> a lobster trap. You can get in, but you can't get out. Mm. So it's the Hotel California of professions. And so what happened was I realized if I only even so we've built and designed courses for the for the 911 industry that are bringing psychology into the work they do customized. But even if we only train, if we even were to train um, most everybody we could, that's still not enough. So we have to also advocate for the well-being of the non-professional. So I got into this bit by bit. The more I saw, the more I felt that I wanted to be a part of it. Wonderful. And it takes all sorts to tackle this enormous issue in emergency dispatch. It takes people who've been in emergency dispatch for a while or a long time, like Jay, and people who have that outside perspective, have the mental health professional perspective. Jumping right in, I, I feel like that's one of the strengths that we have with our group is we have a, a really diverse staff at the 911TI. And it's not just mental health professionals, or not just 911 pros like myself. And we really, we collaborate on everything, but also like our curriculum is designed with the telecommunicator in mind. We're not just putting together like a psych 101 class and hope people can keep up. Right. You know, because the, the needs of the telecommunicator are, are vast, but they're very specific. 
And if we can't meet them where they are, then we're not doing anybody justice. And that's what we want to, we want to avoid giving people a, a cookie cutter solution because that's not going to, going to benefit anyone. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Right. Theories are all well and good, but if they don't translate to everyday practice, what's the point, right? Exactly. Yeah. We don't want to give anybody uh, material or ideas or curriculum that just feels like, okay, great. I could have Googled this, you know, because collaboration is where the real value is. And, and we place a high, a high premium on that. Yeah. Cue the snore track, right? <laughs> Once we start doing a theory, a dangling theory unattached to what actually happens at the console, everything from the ground up has to matter in real time at the console and then matter before and after the calls in terms of the well-being of the telecommunicator, as well as how to optimize that performance. So we're, we're just continuously excited about optimizing what we do for the 911 pros, but also creatively building out more solutions for them. Yeah. And I, I have to say that your enthusiasm is infectious. I love talking to you guys. I love hearing what the 911 training Institute is about because it can be so daunting to see, you know, this Sisyphusian task, right, of mental health for emergency dispatchers who are exposed to huge levels of trauma all the time. It can be really exhausting to say, OK, you know, we just have to get to this next point and then this next point and it just never ends. But the way that you guys talk about it is so positive and so hopeful that I defy the crustiest emergency dispatcher to listen to you talk and not come away changed, frankly. Thank you for that. And, you know, so that heads don't swell and and end up useless. um, I will say that I'll take that as incentive for our team to to press on and, and do more of what we're doing, you know, because think about it in the context of this, right? We're at 2023 at, at the time of the airing of this. And in Michigan, now when professionals are not only not classified as first responders, they have no occupational classification whatsoever. And, and there's no one to point fingers at this, it's not about blaming, but to say this, where we're at in terms of the well-being of our telecommunicators and building out the profession and their ability to manage these calls and optimize is a function of what they are considered to be in the eyes of all stakeholders. And so what we're doing is pressing ahead, recognizing as members of, of the Nauen family do is these are professionals of the highest order. They have to have the highest order skills and equipment and resources and respect. Yeah. And to build on that, like teaching skills that translate to 911, but it has to come from a 911 perspective. Like, you know, resilient skills and some of the the more human aspects of what we do are kind of universal, but how that applies to someone at the console or under the headset, like that has to be built for them. You mentioned, hey, you you take the crustiest person and and dare them not to be impacted by us. Well, Jim and I believe in what we do. Like we really believe in the mission. This class of professional are underserved because they're constantly having to make do with what's available instead of having things made for them. You know, so for us, Creating training materials is great, but we also like to know, we also want our our people to know that we value what they do more than just, hey, I always, one class I teach is called Survive and Thrive, and it's about resilience and wellness for the 901 Pro. But, you know, part of it relates to call mastery. Like, how can you maintain yourself while you take these calls? You know, but I always like to tell people the skills we teach you to maintain yourself during a stressful call or a stressful time at work, that's not just for that moment. That's for your life, too. Because your life matters, your, your, your work-life balance matters, your resilience outside of, of the, the time you're on the clock matters, you know. And so I feel like the more we can bridge the gap between, you know, what we teach people how to value themselves professionally and personally, I think we'll create an industry that has greater longevity and more people actually making it to retirement, which is my goal. 
Yeah. And don't just tell me you value me. Show it to me by the tools you give me for the work I have to do. Yes, absolutely. And so at the 911 Training Institute, you have a lot of tools, a lot of resources for emergency dispatchers. Let's talk about the concept of emergency mental health dispatching or EMHD. Let's just talk about it. Let's talk about the principles behind it. What drives you guys every time you sit down to make a new course or update an old course? Because, you know, things things don't stay stagnant with you guys. You are constantly reevaluating and looking at your tools and saying, okay, is this how we best serve our dispatchers? Let me give you a little bit of historical perspective on this, and then I'm going to turn over to Jay from the dispatcher's perspective, right? Because ultimately it has to matter and feel right in his hands and in the hands of his peers. So the first credit goes, and this is just being accurate here, and I present it this way every place I go. What people in the industry appreciate about Dr. Jeffrey Clausen is that he saw something that was critically important, and that is that we were underutilizing the intelligence and the positioning of the 911 professional. Here we have a mother who's screaming and quote hysterical end quote, which is a term we need to revise because her child's not breathing. And all she could say as the breathing turned to agonal breathing was help is on its way. So what was the enormous contribution of emergency medical dispatch as it evolved with Dr. Clausen's guidance and many people's participation? It was the idea that we don't have to waste minutes, seconds and minutes by under-respecting and valuing the role of the telecommunicator, right? So as I became a student and went through EMD myself later on, but way, way back, if we go back to my first discussions with my sister in 1985, when my first sit-along in 1985, and there was no EMD available, at least not in Michigan, right? I think Dr. Clausen was working on this in the late 70s, and it started to emerge a little bit after that, if I remember my EMD properly. Once those protocols became available, my sister, as the leader of her center, jumped on those. So immediately what we have is, is a change of empowerment of the telecommunicator, not only for better outcomes for that baby and for the mother, but it radically changes the mindset that the dispatcher takes from the console to their home, to the bedroom where they try to sleep. And instead of their brain being cortisolized without any closure and the woulda, coulda, shouldas tormenting them, they have the sense of that sucked There's what I call more a likelihood of clean grief or pure grief without the entanglements of what if, and I should have done more, and I could have done more. That that solved a massive ethical dilemma related to the role of the nylon profession. So, you know, Dr. Clausen and I have different lenses. We come from different disciplines, right? And mine was psychology, and I worked in the Department of Psychiatry for many years. And what I realized was we need to do this for the psychiatric emergencies as we've done for the medical emergencies. And I said, what about emergency mental health dispatching? And so EMD was shaped by bringing clinical experience to bear to the unique role of 911 saying, for the sake of the telecommunicator, their own well-being, and for the callers, just as EMD exists, so also we need to have EMHD. And that's the premise. Yes. So that doesn't get into the rest of the principles and all that yet, but it's an introduction. That's a wonderful introduction and what a a way to look at it, right? Kind of in juxtaposition with Dr. Clausen's life and work. So let's, let's get into it. Let's get into emergency mental health dispatching. What are principles that you look at? What are outcomes that you are hoping to see achieved? So I think probably the the biggest the central tenet of emergency mental health dispatching as it relates to the 9 one pros relationship with the caller is we, we need to rethink 
kind of, in, in a manner of speaking, what our priorities are as a call taker in those moments. So protocol use is great and protocol use gets the job done. But to really connect with callers in crisis, we need to be able to be a little more dynamic. And the, the way that we think that's best achieved is by building an alliance with the caller. That's the terminology we like to use. So instead of just saying, okay, but we're gonna build a rapport with somebody from a customer service standpoint in order to get them to answer questions, we're actually trying to take that little brief window of time that we have and connect with that caller in a way that's powerful to both parties, really, because we're not just saying, hey, you need to, you need to pretend to care about the caller so we can get them to, to cooperate. It's, it goes deeper than that. We, we want you to be able to show genuine concern for the caller situation because building that alliance can't be done artificially. Like we can't just have superficial words to connect with somebody who's truly in crisis. And we want to have a successful outcome by building that alliance, which not only allows for a successful handoff to either law enforcement or medical personnel, but also it allows the call taker who's sitting there at the console to go from that call to the next call and be able to transition well without so much emotional carryover. You know, and as a person who's answered, you know, millions of calls, I can say that's the one thing that nothing ever prepared me for was what do I do with all this stuff that comes up, right? Because we can't help but be affected by these calls that we take and these powerful calls from callers who are suicidal or maybe they've experienced a tremendous loss or whatever the case may be. That, that can stick with us if we're not careful. So as much as it's important to build an alliance with the caller to have a successful outcome for the patient, we also need to be able to do that to protect ourselves and build the skill set that we need to be strong emergency mental health dispatchers. Yeah. So what Jay's bringing us to, if I can just jump right in, Becca, yeah, is the, the, a couple other premises here. Number one is that to teach telecommunicators how to technically function following guidance is part of what is needed. But on calls where there's escalation or we can overuse the term escalation, that suggests that somebody is adrenalized and they're, they're raising pitch and speed of voice, emotionality, you know, when we lose the emotional measurement scales. Everything is elevated, but there's also disconnecting in ways that can be lethal. There's shutting down, and there's also states of ambivalence in which they're neither escalated nor detached per se, but they are struggling whether or not they should invest, whether they should say what they, what they need to say to answer the questions of the dispatcher. What I'm getting at is this. We can teach telecommunicators technically what to say all day long, but they need more than that. They need to be able to regulate what we call their own psychophys. That's an abbreviation for psychophysiology, meaning everything that happens that's loaded psychologically and energized that comes through the headset from callers in distress and also from the field is playing out within every system of the physiology of the telecommunicator. And that not only can do, create what's called a neural hijack and keep them from their best thinking in real time, it also wears them down and, and drains their resilience and they're more apt to not succeed in their health or performance over a lifetime. So they need to be prepared both for the moment and for, you know, as an ethical responsibility for their career by integrating resilience training into emergency mental health dispatching. It's not separate courses per se, though we do have peer resilience courses. It's infusing resilience mindset and skill set into how then do we relate to the caller. That's a major piece of this. And then the, the other part of it is this. And this is very fundamental to EMHD, which is, I believe, also the EMD, not speaking for the academies or, or others, but I know that this is completely a fit. The noun professional should never be burdened or tasked with clinical responsibility. Mm. They're not clinically trained, therefore they should not be in a clinical position. What protocols do is remove the clinical burden from them while being clinically and scientifically informed in their responses. 
And so as EMD does that, so also EMHD does that. So we're not saying, okay, now you need even more training. We're going to weigh you down even more. There's even more should has got to do's and all that stuff. No, what we're saying is if we create the pathways for you in the mind, the way of relating to the caller, we're freeing you up. And this is the third concept to be more yourself, to be more yourself. We're rehumanizing the call taker as well as helping them through greater understanding of the callers who are struggling in crisis, rehumanizing them as opposed to without enough knowledge, putting them into dimensional cardboard figures. Oh, they're a schizophrenic or that's a suicidal, that's a this. No, no, no. Once we go there, we're losing everything that the Alliance is built on. I know that's a lot. It is. And it's, it's a lot of good stuff, though, right? So I'm going to metaphorize for a second here. So rather than <laughs> rather than this training, this protocol, and we'll get to that being, you know, heavy sort of burdened to put in the backpack of the dispatcher, it's more of a safety net, right? So they're they're walking over the tightrope, they're walking over the plank that is, you know, a potentially perilous call like this, and they have that knowledge that they are supported by the protocols and the principles and by the organization as well. Right. So mm-hmm. they the they are able to operate within that and know when they hang up that they did literally everything that they could do. And like you, I loved that you mm-hmm. called it pure grief and clean grief, where if it doesn't go well, at least you don't have that regret. One thing that that we're constantly yes. facing not just at 91TI, but also in my work with Priority, because I travel all over the U.S. doing different things for them. Whenever I ask, hey, what are the call types that get you the most excited? You know, and everybody always says CPR and childbirth. And those, you know, those are always two that get people excited. But the next one is suicide. And they're always like, I don't know what I can or can't say. You know, and one thing that, that we really want to impart on people with our EMHD curriculum is there's not a script for you to follow. Because there shouldn't be. Because every call is dynamic. The Alliance you build with every caller is going to be different. But we, what we can do is say, we might not be able to tell you exactly what to say, but we can tell you what needs to be conveyed to that caller to have the best outcome. We can give you a lot of the whys and not so much the what, because the what's going to change. Now, the what's are great. The script is wonderful for the basic everyday stuff. But callers in crisis, we shouldn't, shouldn't homogenize them to think that certain keywords need to be hit. You know, what we're really looking for is to build that alliance, which to Jim's earlier point, if we're dealing with someone who's disconnected, there may not be a lot of speaking going on. Or if someone's really anxious or having a manic episode, then maybe we're barely going to get a word in. You know, but those can all lead to successful outcomes because we're going to equip people with knowing what needs to happen. Mm. What Jay is speaking to is the freedom that the telecommunicator needs to have. And what's wonderful is in partnering with the academies, they so respect this and, and want this and recognize that in the academy standards for dispatch, there is room for flexibility that, that sometimes folks don't realize, right? And so this is one of the assurances that made it so positive for me to team up with them. What Jay is referring to is, okay, The only script that exists is a protocol when a protocol is necessary for assessing and ruling out suicide, self-injurious behavior, homicide, domestic violence, and mental crises. Yes, we do have a script. We have a protocol that we'll talk about on another time. And it was dispatchers themselves that actually said, when I said, well, you know what, maybe we should make the wording flexible on that protocol. It was dispatchers who I presented it to who said, no, no, no. 
Jim, you've worked so hard with, you know, collaborators to come up with this wording. It's better for us just to follow that wording because you've taken the guesswork out for us. Having said that, what Jay is speaking to, as I hear it, Jay, and just jump in, is that the dispatcher has to have the freedom within any moment of that call, not to slow us down from each of our dispatch points or to make it more than dispatch into some sort of armchair psychology, making the call longer. No, no, no. But when the, the caller is struggling, being oppositional or shutting down or being resistant, you can't script a response to that. It has to be an embodied human response. It can be and needs to be informed by psychology and conversational analysis, two different disciplines, right? But it has to be flexible in the hands of the dispatcher. Right. So, Jay, you talked about creating an alliance with the caller, you Mm -hmm. know, letting the caller know that you're a person too, recognizing their humanity. How does that manifest, right? Because you have this theory, you have this idea, and while there isn't a set script per se, are there kind of phrases that people can start with and then blossom from there? Yes and no. Like we definitely have some certain techniques that we like to impart on our students that we think would yield better results. And that's something that's always changing. Like as we get new information or we bring on new collaborators, we're always updating some of the terminology that we like to use. But what we want to, to really make sure that people are aware is when we say building an alliance, like that, in a lot of ways, that's as simple as just kind of letting the caller know that we're willing to meet them where they are. In typical protocol use, what we're doing is trying to get the caller to be compliant with what we're putting forth. Whereas with EMHD, you know, there has to be a certain degree of compliance for, for practical reasons, because we need address, phone number, that sort of thing. But we also, we want people to know that like, it's okay to editorialize a bit. So we do provide guidance to certain language. Like for instance, I've got the guide open here for a caller who is depressed, right? The caller's being self-critical. We might affirm that calling was a good thing. And examples we say are, hey, everyone can feel overwhelmed sometimes, but we all need help sooner or later, right? Now we're not saying that they need to say those words, but that intent needs to be conveyed to the caller, letting them know that it's okay to feel overwhelmed and everybody could use help from time to time, normalizing the need to ask for help and letting the caller know that we are a conduit for them to get, get help that they might need at that moment. You know, so scripting is not necessarily a word that we like to use, no, I but more of, right. more of just like gentle guidance, because going back to where we started with this today, the protocols were created under the assumption that our people can do more. And what we see with EMHD is kind of an evolution of that, where we're saying, OK, you guys are already doing more, but we think that you can be even more dynamic because this idea of being beholden to a script doesn't work in these situations as well as it could. So we're going to give you parameters to work under where you can go in and out of the protocol that will allow you to be more, for lack of a better word, more human with the caller. And that way you can also take control of it and it'll empower our people to be their best selves. That's well put, Jay. And to bring it from my perspective a little bit more is absolutely read the protocols as written. We keep fidelity to the messaging in the protocols. What we're saying though, is that the mental state of the caller can make it difficult for them to participate with you. Our goal with EMHD is not to make the calls longer. It's not to make our now and pros into armchair therapists. The reality is sometimes the calls go longer than we need them to go because we're not sure what to say. We're not sure how to bring them back online to move to the next step of the protocol and reach your dispatch points, right? So what do we do when the caller's mental state, the things that they're expressing mm-hmm. struggle with? Right now, there's not guidance that's specific and that's, that's scientifically guided 
to give the dispatcher options for how to roll. So imagine a protocol. It's literally a bridge. But the reality is at times on the bridge, you get stuck. Now, how do you how do you bring that person closer to you? Sometimes we have to pull off to the side. Now, it's almost like we need basically to step on the little waiting platforms along the way where we can offer some support to the person so they're willing to come back onto the bridge and take the next step to, to word us, right? So we create guidance and the difference between script and guidance is this. Script would be cookie cutter and protocols are not scripts and they're not cookie cutter. Protocols are, are what need to happen. We need to ask these questions this way. Having said that, right, the difference between the guidance and the script is the script is cookie cutter. Guidance is flexible and can be customized to the real-time experience that's unique to each caller, call taker moment, right? And again, why do we need guidance? Well, because we're taking science and turning it into possible responses. But then what we tell the dispatcher is, you don't have to be a clinician, but you do have to get familiar with these, know these, and most importantly, and here's what conversational analysis will tell us. And I think of Heidi Feldman, her work in the, the book Crisis Talk, right? And that is that, giving people things they can say out of context to a real conversation becomes cookie cutterish. We can't do that. The, the dispatchers need to know the why. Why is it that certain messaging, certain phrases, certain responses are more helpful or unhelpful based on what science can tell us, both from conversation analysis and from psychology. So that's what we're trying to do is give them example messaging in the training, see, we don't just say, here are example messages. No, no. In the training, we talk about what makes these valuable, what makes them important. Right. So they're not starting from ground zero when they're on a call and it kind of gets stuck. You know, like you said, you have to pull off to the side of the bridge a little bit. And again, they're they're not starting from scratch. You have principles, you have ideas. So they're not just like grasping in the dark. Should I say this to this person who's in this mental health state? Should I say this to someone who has depression versus someone who's having a manic episode? That's really, really helpful. And like you said, it it reduces that moral injury. It really does. And and I, I like to compare it in some ways to giving CPR over the phone. You know, like we're very adamant about saying no one's a clinician here. We're not giving clinical advice over the phone to our callers, right? But, you know, a lot of our dispatchers don't have a medical background, but we give CPR every day, multiple times a day. And don't think twice about it. Deliver babies. You know, all, all of the high level medical stuff happens because the protocol acts as a guiding tool, but our people are capable of that. And we even, norm we even normalize that level of heroism every day. So why can't they take over callers in crisis and, and expand their skill set? Because they clearly have the ability to do it because we, we do it all the time anyway. We're just shifting that focus a little bit more to the internal versus the external. Yeah. Think of it this way, Becca, see what you think about this. Right now, where are we at in the US in terms of mental health care? Right. And the whole issue of alternative response to to mental health crises. So they're redefining the role of, of policing and the integration of mental health professionals and their care into the response. So where you have to be sure that there's scene safety, we have law enforcement involved, where you're able to rule out scene safety issues, you have more flexibility. So you can engage teams, mobile teams, whether it, depending on the multiple models out there, you have a paramedic and a mental health professional, or you have mental health professionals, et cetera. We also have now the infusion of mental health professionals in the comm centers, playing at least one role of assisting with some of the calls, but then also offering mental health support to the, the dispatchers. In that context, what we're wanting to do is recognize even then 
Still, the call comes to 911. What does the dispatcher do? Even to be able to determine safely that that call can be transferred, say if it's more of a low code, right? It's, and we recognize that there's not a scene safety, but they need mental health care. How are they determining that? Now, this pulls us into an, another conversation, and that's the LifeBridges protocol, right? They need a measurable, objective means by which they're ruling out these risks. But having said that, in any case, dispatchers, even if they don't have to take the full length of the call, need to optimize how they're relating human to human. Yes. Because it affects the, the, the pass to the others. It, it primes the rest, whether it be mental health professionals or field responders. Right, exactly. We like to talk in dispatch about emergency dispatchers being the first first responder, right? Mm -hmm. And if something goes wrong at dispatch, it goes wrong all the way down, right? It really does. Even more so with these mental health calls, because Jim, like you were talking about, we in America are reevaluating who to send to these calls. Right. Is law enforcement the best option or should we have something else happening? And so people will call and say, but don't send a police officer. Right. But if you, as the dispatcher, set up that situation for safety for the patient, safety for the responders, it, it's just going to go a lot more smoothly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, Jim, for people who are listening to the podcast and getting really excited about this because they have been looking for these resources for a while, what offerings does the 911 Training Institute have for them? Right. So to be able to embrace and, and get going with emergency mental health dispatching, what we recognize is that comm centers are at a variety of different places in terms of wherewithal to bring in people live for training. We have understaffing. It's really, really tough. So we have multiple modes of training. The one is we have a one day live class called Foundations of Emergency Mental Health Dispatching. And all of this is available at the knowntraining.net website. That is an introduction to EMHD for centers where they can't bring everyone through the next class, which is emergency mental health dispatching plus life bridges. That's a three-day comprehensive course, which is also available as a certification course with testing, scenario enactments, et cetera. We do these courses, of course, all virtually as well, the one day and the three day. And folks, if you think that it like by Zoom, it's death by PowerPoint, people get very involved here. It's very interactive. Then we have, with our partnership with Virtual Academy, we have the 911TI Academy, where we have our courses asynchronously, including the Foundations of Emergency Mental Health Dispatching. Also on the Virtual Academy platform, you'll see that we have an intro to building light bridges to suicide callers. So they can check out the website for more. Perfect. And we will have that link in the show notes. Well, gentlemen, we've covered a lot of ground today. As a wrap up, if there is just one thing that listeners take away from this episode, what would you want it to be? Jay, we'll start with you. One thing. Wow. Oh, man, that's tough for me to be reductive. But I'm going to say. If they had to take away one thing, I would say I would challenge every 911 pro who's listening to think about what they have to offer callers in crisis and to challenge themselves to, to do more than what they're doing. And that's tough for me to leave it there, but I'll be succinct. Mm. <laughs> I think they're capable of so much. And, and I think that a lot of times we in this industry just don't get an opportunity to really show what our gifts are or what we're capable of. And I think this is one area that is, is we can really empower people to be the best version of their professional selves and personal selves. Uh, and you just teed me up nicely, Jay, because when you say challenge themselves to do more than they are doing, here's all that they need. We have the dedication, we have the intelligence, we have the willingness from our people to do all they possibly can on these calls involving mental crises and suicide. 
what I would say is the one thing I want them to take away is that we're trying to help you achieve that by giving you the tools you deserve to have. There is a, a necessity of giving our people what they need to do the job they desire to do. We just hope that we're contributing to that. And we, we trust their response to good stuff. And we want to, I just want to thank them for collaborating because it's been their collaboration with, with us that's made it possible to do what we do. Yeah, real quick, if I may, Jim mentioned about doing training online. It's not Def by PowerPoint. You know, Jim and I, PowerPoint is a necessity, unfortunately. But, you know, I always lead off my classes by saying, if I don't show you one slide, I don't care because the discussions we'll have is where the value comes in. We do not want to give people a rubber stamp. Like we're not here to check a box. We want to have interaction and we want to have meaningful discussion with, with our groups of, of people, whether it's one agency or mixed agencies or whatever. And that's really important to us because that collaboration is where we find strength and that's how we remain relevant. Yeah, we'll, we'll get the key concepts achieved without necessarily dependence on the PowerPoint. Perfect. Absolutely well said. If you are listening to this and you would like to collaborate with the 911 Training Institute, you can visit them at 911training.net. There you can find the bios and the courses listed. We will also have other relevant links in the show notes. If you're listening to this and saying, oh my gosh, you guys got some of my favorite dudes on the podcast. Here's who else you should have on the podcast. Uh, go ahead and email us at dispatchindepth at emergencydispatch.org. And this is a two-part episode, so come back. We are going to talk about the life bridges slash caller in crisis protocol next time. So keep your eyes peeled. And gentlemen, talk to you then. Thanks, Becca. Thank you. MPDS Protocol 41, Caller in Crisis, will be released in fall 2023 with MPDS version 14. Any agency that wants to make use of Protocol 41 will first need to put their emergency dispatchers through the Caller in Crisis course on the College of Emergency Dispatch, which will be released alongside the update. Thanks for listening to Dispatch in Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch in Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. 